0: John chapter 12, we're in John chapter 12, this Lord's Day and hopefully next Lord's Day and several Lord's Days uh, coming, John chapter 12, the Gospel of John was written, if you've ever wondered this and not known it, I think most of you know this, for a distinct purpose. He says, I could have wrote a lot more things than I did, but I wrote what I wrote so that you would believe that Jesus... This Jesus of Nazareth historical figure from the first century is God's Christ. The Lord's Christ is the Christ that is a specially anointed servant of the Lord as promised in the Old Testament, but also he is the son of God. There's something unique about him. He's just not a mere man. He's very man, but he's also very God in the beginning was the word or son and the word was with God and the word was God and the word became flesh. And he wants you to believe that so that you can enjoy the life that he has come to give to believing sinners. We have to believe in the proper uh, vocation calling of Jesus the Christ and person both God and man, in order to be saved. And so that's why he wrote. Now, this section where we're in, in John chapter 12, excuse me, actually begins up in verse 20. If you have a Bible, I'm going to start reading from there. Now, there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. Now, this is important because if we were all in the first century, and this is a synagogue session, we're primarily, if not exclusively, Jews, okay? But now you have this a public festival that's going on, religious festival, and Greeks come. Now that, that's pretty important. Greeks are coming to the center of Jewish religion, uh, Jerusalem, and it says here, then they came to Philip, verse 21, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus, Philip, came and told Andrew, and in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. So non-Jewish people come into the Jewish temple, and they say, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Now, they told Jesus this, but notice Jesus' response. Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Now, that's interesting because he doesn't say, Oh, Philip, Andrew, call him over here or tell him in an hour, I'll go talk to him. He makes it, he answers them by making a pronouncement. Okay. Jesus pronounces, asserts glorious things in small compass, many places throughout the Gospel of John. Here's one of those. The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Now, if we're good readers of the Gospel of John, we know that he said before, the hour has not come. My hour has not come. My hour has not come upon me yet. Okay. Now he's saying the hour has come. Right on the heels of these Greeks coming and saying, sir, we wish to see Jesus. And then Jesus is informed of it. And he says, now is the hour for my glorification. Very interestingly, this title, Son of Man, is used many times in the New Testament. Most times, I believe, by Jesus. Um, It's used 13 times in John's Gospel, Son of Man, and over 80 times in the New Testament. But in our text, once we get down to our text, uh, it's used by um, unbelievers, as far as we know, once. Once but it's the most common title that Jesus affixes to himself. So Greeks are there. Now, if we're Jews, if we're disciples, if we're believers at the time, we should be, by John chapter 12, and this point in the life of Jesus, we should be thinking, is this related to the Old Testament? The Greeks come in, and then Jesus says, now it's time for me to die. And if you take that phrase, Son of Man, and did a search... In the Old Testament, you'd find it in a few places. The most prominent place is Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, where this son of man figure, it's a vision that Daniel gets, is seen ascending up to the ancient of days, and a kingdom of give, is given to him, and dominion and power and authority and peoples, both Jews and Greeks. So it's a vision about the ascension, the coronation, the current session of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus takes this 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 title upon himself, and then um, pronounces that his hour has come, basically for him to suffer unto death and be raised from the dead and ascend into heaven. And you can see that if you read the next uh, portion of the passage. But we're going to skip down to verse thirty. The, Jesus, uh, excuse me, verse thirty-one. Jesus says, "Now is the judgment of this world. Now is the ruler of this world." Now the ruler of this world will be cast out, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. This, he said, signifying by what death he would die. So he's talking about his death. If I be lifted up, just like Moses lifted up the serpent, so must the Son of Man be lifted up from the earth, John 3, 14. He's already used this language. Now watch what the people do. The people here are referring to an unbelieving crowd of people. We don't know how many. Uh, but we can put ourselves there and see Jesus, a group of disciples, could be some other followers of Christ other than just the 12, and these, this group of people, unbelievers, Jewish people that are there for religious purposes. But notice what they say. The people answered him. We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. And how can you say, the Son of Man must be lifted up? Stop there. Did he say, in those exact words, The son of man must be lifted up. No, he said, I, if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw him into myself. But he did call himself the son of man earlier in in this scene, right? So were they right to put the title onto him? It looks like it. You say the son of man must be lifted up. Who is this son of man? Okay, so their response has, first of all, Um, an assertion. We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. What does that mean? We have heard, we, the crowd, have heard whether they read it themselves, probably not. They probably heard it at a synagogue instruction hour. It was probably taught to them by their teachers. The Christ will remain forever. We have heard from the law. Now, the law what does that refer to just moses no probably refers from to the entirety of the old testament because sometimes the old testament is reduced to this phrase and i think this is probably right here we have heard from the law that the christ remains forever now so far so good okay we got jesus on one side and the disciples are probably around him and then we got the people on the other we have heard from the law that the Christ, especially an anointed servant of the Lord that's coming in the future, who's now in the presence of these people, remains forever. This is an assertion. They claim that they know something about the teaching of the Old Testament in reference to the Christ, the Messiah. The Christ remains forever. Okay, So if we're there again, and Jesus, and let's put ourselves with the disciples, okay? We're over here with Jesus and the disciples, and they're over here going, we've heard from the Old Testament that it teaches that the Messiah is not lifted up, is what they're saying. Does not die. Because how can he die and remain forever? We have heard that he remains forever, okay? So this is what they're getting at. The Son of Man must, who is this Son of Man? If the Son of Man must be lifted up, how can He be the Christ of the Old Testament? Since we have heard from the Law that He's not going to be lifted up, He's going to live forever. How can He die and remain forever? That's what they they didn't get. Okay. Now you might be sitting here going, "What "What does my life have to do with ancient Jews?" If you don't if you don't get what Jesus gets at here. Um, you'll die in your sins. So it's pretty important. So basically what they're saying is, now let's put ourselves over here. We're the people. We're saying, hey, Jesus, you got the Old Testament right and we busted you. You're wrong, we're right. Now, no, I don't think anybody in this room wants to say, well, I, don't put me with those people. I wouldn't say that to Jesus. You're wrong and I'm Right. Basically, if you haven't given yourself to Christ in the gospel offer, that's what you're saying. You don't say it explicitly, but by your denial of him, by your lack of taking his word and believing upon him for salvation, you're basically saying, you're wrong and I'm right, or I want to live wrong for a little while longer. I know you're right, but I just want to do what I want to do. And then at some point when it gets really bad in life, then I'll, then I'll go to you. That's kind of what people do. So we have this assertion about the Old Testament, and then they have two related questions. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up, and who is this Son of Man? Um, Their first question, if the Christ remains forever according to the Old Testament, and it is clear that he does, how is it that you claim he doesn't? Okay, it's clear that the Old Testament teaches he remains forever, but you're claiming he doesn't. Now, did Jesus claim that the Son of Man does not endure forever? No. He just said the Son of Man must be lifted up. If the lifting up of the Son of Man is signifying, and it is, what kind of death he, was, he would die, does it necessarily follow that if the Son of Man dies, he doesn't remain forever? What if he rises from the dead? Okay, so the guy, they, they saw the Old Testament teaching the glory of the Messiah, he remains forever, he has a kingdom, it's universal. They all saw all that while he was on the earth, apart from any sufferings unto death. Now, this is their, this is their fault, They have heard from the law. They probably got it taught to them. And the Jews of the first century didn't see the suffering son of man in the Old Testament. They only saw the reigning son of man, according to the Old Testament. And this is what is uh, hard for people to get their minds around. Wait a minute. The king dies? Yes, but he rises from the dead. Yeah, but he died. Yes, but nobody took his life from him. He gave it up, and he took it up. Now, now that's interesting. He's going to be lifted up, and yet nobody took it from him. He voluntarily gave up his life, and he had power to not only give it, but power to raise it up again. Well, the answer is yes, but they didn't see that. Does the Old Testament teach that the Christ remains forever? Yes, they got that part of it right. Once I have sworn, this is Psalm 89, once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His seed shall endure forever. There's that language. And his throne, as the sun before me, it shall be established forever like the moon, even like the faithful witness in the sky, Selah. Now that's a messianic psalm, and most likely the Jews in the first century would have seen that as a messianic psalm. Endure forever somebody in the line of David is going to be enthroned and endure forever. That's where they got this language. We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. Psalm 110.4 says, The Lord has sworn and will not relent, You, the Messiah, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, we all want a reigning Messiah, a reigning servant of the Lord, that has authority over all and is a... And as a benevolent monarch, at least we should, what if we could have a sinless monarch that rules and reigns all peoples? We go, huh, we should say that that's fine. The problem is people don't see the suffering of the monarch, of the king. And they didn't see the suffering of the king. It looks like this is weakness, This is folly. This is some of the things they called it in the first century. Foolishness. Because people don't see the need. In order for a human monarch to rule us um, and to bring us to a better land, he's got to deal with more than just our resistance. Okay, He's got to deal with our guilt and the law and justice of God. That's where his sufferings come in. That's what they didn't see. Even in the prophet Isaiah, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So so this is right of them to assign this meaning to the Old Testament. On the one hand, the Christ the Son of Man, and they're, they're seeing that Jesus is equating Christ and Son of Man here. He does remain forever. There is this glorious king, king and, and kingdom that he rules over, and it goes on forever and ever and ever. So that assertion is right as far as it goes. But their question reveals a hole in their understanding of the Old Testament. Because listen, you have the forever, the Messiah forever, the Son of man forever passages, but you also have this. Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. That's in the Old Testament. That's in Daniel chapter 9, verse 26. So you have on the one hand, in the Old Testament, Messiah lives forever texts. And then you have this cut off, He'll die, but not for himself, not by virtue of being guilty and therefore justly liable to the punishment of death for his personal sins. He should, be, he should be cut off, but not for himself. Isaiah 53 says, he is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Now my soul is troubled, John twelve twenty seven and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions. This is what they didn't get. They didn't get the sufferings of the Messiah. They only got the glory of the Messiah from the Old Testament. They were instructed uh, wrongly. And they believed their instructors, and you can see it, see it here. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed, and we like all we like sheep have gone astray. Some of you know the passage, okay? Isaiah 53, 3 through 7. Very clearly, that's not that's talking about the sufferings unto death of the servant of the Lord who is the son of man the Christ of God. God's Christ was predicted by the Old Testament writers to be incarnate, then suffer unto death, and then reign or be gloriously uh, exalted upon his suffering unto death obedience. Their first question assumes the Old Testament taught the glory of the Messiah but not his sufferings for our sins. See that the Son of Man must be lifted up? That's their first question. And it assumes the Old Testament taught the glory of the Messiah, but not his sufferings for our sins. So we could put it another way. You're claiming that the Son of Man must suffer. The Old Testament doesn't teach that. Again, if we're now if we're a third or fourth party uh, witnessing all this, we're going... Uh, speaking in the vernacular if I was younger dudes, do you realize what you're doing here? This is the incarnate Son of God here. And you're saying you got the Old Testament right, or at least your teachers got the Old Testament right, and he got the Old Testament wrong. He doesn't know what he's talking about on this issue. Do you realize this is the one that God has stationed to judge all at the day of the resurrection? You know, you want to shout that out to him, And they didn't have all this information yet, but we... We here have, have all this information. This is a this is a astounding scene, isn't it? The incarnate Son of God, sinless son of God, and people who are disagreeing with his interpretation of the Hebrew scriptures. the first century Jews in large part didn't allow the Old Testament to paint a full full portrait of our Lord. In other words, the first century Jews didn't read the Old Testament as it was intended to be read. And you say, well, what's the big deal? If you know a little about history, something huge happened in AD 70. They lost their temple and basically their status as a God's covenant nation. They were, they were apostates and God judged them. Matter of fact, you can see this here and look at the end of verse 36. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. Now that's interesting. They had all this light, this crowd. And he, we have one of those weird texts. This happens before. Uh, These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. What does that mean? Some, some of the commentators I read said, this is an acted parable. Do you know what that is? He acts, he does something that should be teaching them something else. Which, watch the next verse. But although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him. What's the acted parable here? He's basically saying, you won't believe in me, you're going to be hardened. And in the first century, the bulk of them did not believe in, in the Messiah. Paul says we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block, right? Christ remaining forever, was not a stumbling block. You know, I think if we were back there, we'd go, a Christ who remains forever? Yeah, come, King Jesus, let's go get him. But if somebody said, hold on, the glory comes after the sufferings. Christ crucified must take place. We'd go, that's weakness. Weakness. You know what God shows through apparent weakness? His power, right? Read 2 Corinthians, probably the whole letter. That's where Paul's saying, yeah, I'm weak, but God shows his strength through my weakness. And and the weakness of the incarnate son, the weakness, in quotes, giving himself up to these people who knew he was innocent and yet accused him of being guilty, Seems to be a losing cause, doesn't it? Now, I've said this before. Ironic things happen in the Bible. The serpent gets to the man through the woman. God gets to the serpent through the woman who gives birth to a man without a man. That's irony. Like, whoa, I didn't know that was going to happen that way. This is another one of those redemptive reversals, one of, the, one of my current living teachers, uh, puts that. Like, wh- what? Crucified? They crucified the Lord of glory, and crucifixion to them was a stumbling block. Now, this crowd was right to assert that Christ, that Christ remains forever, but wrong to assume he could not die and yet remain forever. Now, that, that's the, there's a mystery... Wait a minute. They're right to assert that the Christ remains forever, but wrong to assur- assume he could not die and yet remain forever. How can he die and yet remain forever? What if his vocation as the Christ of God was 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 a is an eternal plan that the Son of God, the Word of God, in time would assume human nature and be according to his divine nature, in total control of every event that's going on in the world, including the ones around his life as an incarnate mediator. And it was part of the divine plan that this mediator, this word who became flesh, who assumed our flesh in order to obey in it and suffer in it for other people, was in charge of his own death, the timing of it, Nobody took it from him. He gave it up. What if that's the case? And that is the case. Then there is a way in which he could remain forever and yet die because he's dying not according to his divine nature. While he's dying, his divine nature is is upholding the human nature. And when the soul is taken from the human body, the fleshly body of our Lord, it's a divine thing that's happening there. And then when it's brought back on the third day into the body of, into the corpse of the incarnate Son of God, that's a divine thing happening so that on the one hand, yes, he died, his, his soul was separated from his body, and that was divine justice, and yet he's going to remain afterwards because he is God, the Son incarnate. And he says, destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up. Then you can see, okay, he's going to live forever. He's going to be the Christ forever. And yet, he's going to also die. Who is this son of man, they ask. Uh, It's clearly in the context, they they know that he's claiming to be this son of man. Uh, But they can't see how he can be the son of man. Live forever and yet be lifted up. Those two don't, don't fit with them. It looks like, you know, at most funerals, we're just going, oh, this is disaster and such a loss and, and all these things. Now, Jesus responds in verses 35 and 36. And I think second hour, we'll look at those. But I do want to have at least one contemplation. Okay, two contemplations. And the first one is this. Just from what we've gone over so far. An insufficient knowledge of the word of God can be very damaging to one's soul. Can you see that in the passage? Okay, from the law, he remains forever. But how is this son of man, who is the Christ, going to be lifted up and yet remain forever. It doesn't work out that way, basically, because they thought the Old Testament didn't think that. These people in our text were sure they were right, and Jesus was wrong. You know, I think I've said this before, something like this, hey, Jesus, incarnate Son of God, by the way, even the demons, remember that weird sections in some of Mark's and Luke's Gospels, where the demons say, hey, G- Jesus, you son of God, quit tormenting us before the time. E- even they realized, number one, he's the incarnate son of God, and number two, he's going to judge me in the future, uh, but don't do it now, at least in full. Even the demons knew that. Jesus, basically, these people are saying revealer of God like none other, so-called Messiah and Son of Man, you are wrong about yourself in relation to Scripture and what we've been taught is right. Uh, Us us and our teachers, we're right and you're wrong. You get Moses wrong, we get Moses right. Uh, I've said this. In effect, this is what people confronted with the claims of Jesus think. I am right about Jesus. He's not worth listening to or believing in. And Jesus is wrong about Jesus. He's wrong to offer himself to sinners like me. That sounds weird, right? Maybe when you evangelize or talk to people, if you put it into those words, it might strike them a little more. So you're basically saying, you are right about Jesus and Jesus is wrong about Jesus. So is that what you're saying? You know, now if we were there, if I was there, I might have said that to those people. Knowing me, um, I would have probably said, "Really? That's what you you want to go toe to toe with the incarnate Son of God and say our teachers are better than you as a teacher? We get the Old Testament right; you get it wrong. We're not going to entrust ourselves to you." Hmm. What we have in these people is this. I'm quoting somebody else men looking only at one side of a subject, men putting asunder what God in his word has conjoined and opposing one truth under pretense of upholding another, men confident just in proportion to their ignorance, right? These these people seem to be pretty confident. I mean, they're asking Jesus this. Men trying to trying the patience of god and trifling with the interests of their eternity men resting the scriptures to their own destruction that's what we have here have you ever done that yourself when we were any of us were unbelievers yeah because we didn't believe the scriptures So an insufficient knowledge of the word of God can be very damaging to one's soul. And then second, Jesus' response to the people is astonishing. I do want to look really briefly at his response to the people. Then Jesus said to them, Psalm 89, Psalm 104, Isaiah 9 Isaiah 7, Isaiah 9, Isaiah 53, and a multitude of other texts in all parts of the Hebrew Old Testament, the scriptures uh, unto this day, teach both the sufferings and the glory of Messiah. That's not what he responded, right? It says here, then Jesus said to them, a little while longer. Now, their question was, how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up who is this son of man? Two-fold question. You see how he answers it? It's not like a direct answer to their direct questions. Then he said, a little while longer, the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of God. Like. Now, some of you know Jesus well enough from the pages of Scripture that, you know, you kind of went, of course, he's not going to answer that kind of a question. He doesn't do that. But what does this mean here? Is this like, these are words exclusively of judgment. You know, if it was me, and they're going toe-to-toe with me about a Scripture thing, at some point I'd probably say, you know what, just get out of my life. I don't want to, I'm going to block you on Twitter. You know, Whatever. There is some sense of judgment going on here, right? While the light's there, you better follow it or else you're going to be in darkness. That seems like judgment, like permanent darkness. But there's also hope offered to them, right? There's a little while and you have the light. I think he's talking about himself and his incarnate flesh and ministry on the earth and he's going to leave there. But he doesn't go toe-to-toe with them. He does not hurl tons of Bible verses at them. He doesn't rebuke them for following the teachings of their teachers. He gives a promise and a warning. A little little while longer, the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. Whatever that is, it doesn't sound good, right? While you have the light, believe... Ah, in the light, that you may become sons of light. Now, he claimed to be the light of the world, the author of salvation, the bestower uh, of of salvation uh, upon men who are living in darkness. Read the Gospel of John. You can hear that. He is the author of salvation. He is the bestower of it on men who are walking in darkness. So this is, on the one hand, a warning, but on the other hand, a promise. Our Lord means something like this. I'm quoting somebody else. Seek to secure the knowledge of truth, the enjoyment of the divine favor, everlasting happiness. This is a lot of the stuff that's packed in the concept of light. This is the great business of life. What is the great business of life? To make sure I'm right with God, because a judgment's coming, and I want to make sure I'm right with God. How do you get right with God? Believe in the light. What is this light? It's the revelation that's come from God through the Messiah, the, torch, the revelatory, torch-bearing, uh, uh, incarnate Son of God who brought the knowledge of God like no one ever did to the face of the earth. Believe Him. Trust Him. That's what he's talking about. Attend to it while it may be attended to with success. Don't wait for the day that you're going to walk around in darkness. Now, I think with reference to the Jews here, this is Jesus' way of basically saying, not long after my ascension, the apostles are going to say, hey, we're going to wipe our feet off here. These Jews don't want to hear it. We're going to the Greeks. That happens in the book of Acts, by the way. What does it mean to believe in the light? Because he says, believe in the light. Somebody says, "It it is so to be persuaded. Believe in the light. So to be persuaded that he is the light, that is that that Christ is the light. What does that mean? The procurer, the one who gains, and the bestower, the one who delivers or gives of salvation. The great revealer of God, the manifested eternal life and light, the deliverer from ignorance and error and guilt and depravity and misery. This is in one part what it means to be a Christian. I, yeah, I believe that's, that, that's who he is. Uh, you, you know that, st- that question, it's in the children's catechism, but it's in the, old, in the shorter catechism as well. Why do I need Christ as my prophet, as one who teaches me? Because I'm ignorant is the answer. Why do I need Christ as my priest? Because I'm guilty. Why do I need Christ as my king? Because I'm weak and impotent, and there's many enemies that are way more powerful than, than I am. The deliverer from ignorance and error and guilt and depravity and misery. In one word, the author of true blessedness in all its extent of which light is the emblem Light is just a figure of speech signifying Christ in his person and work. And what he procures, what he gains for us, what he bestows on us, ultimately is going to entail what the theologians call the beatific vision. This marvelous, soul-enthralling sight of God with the soul that is exceedingly and abundantly above all that we asked and thought. This blessedness. We look for blessedness because we're creatures great in the image of God. We're, we look for those things uh, in sideways thingies, unfortunately, in spouses, in jobs, in children, in parents, in education, in books. Oh, yeah, yeah,. I just nailed myself there. Does that mean we should be hermits and, and, you know, move up into the mountains and hide away from all the things in the world and cut off our electricity and all that? No. Things, creatures, can be used, but they should be used as creatures for God ultimately in our, in our lives. Is a car a creature? We usually think of creatures as like bug, creepy crawlers or something like that, bugs. Uh, A creature, a thing created, thing made. Yes, a car is. Did you, a vehicle, did you use your vehicle hopefully for the glory of God this morning? Hopefully you did. You drove it to church, okay? But that's one thing. It's another thing to have a vehicle for the vehicle's sake or the pleasure that the vehicle gives me full stop, that's it. Can we utilize what men call vacations? You know, take time off of our normal labors and maybe head to the coast or the mountains or whatever for a brief time and oh, just relax. Yes, we can do that. Can we, can we overdo it? Yes, a good thing overdone gets undone. Can we use vo- vacation for the glory of God? Yes, but quite often we don't do this. But Christ is going to bring everybody who believes upon him to a blessed state of bliss. So what does it mean to believe in the light? As to trust in him in this character, to give ourselves up to his direction, to rely on his atoning sacrifice and transforming spirit, to expect from him From him alone, all the blessings of salvation. That's what it means to believe in the light. And why does Jesus, at the end here, why does he not go toe-to-toe? Why doesn't he answer their question? Their their question, they, they knew what he claimed. He claimed to be both the Son of Man, the one who was going to be lifted up, and he never denied that he'd remain forever. He just taught something they missed that the Christ was to suffer and then, by virtue of his resurrection, be raised on the third day. The rain comes after the suffering. The suffering is due to our sins and guilt. The rain is in order to ensure that the forgiven sinners who believe in the light, Jesus, will ultimately get to Emmanuel's land he has to rule and reign over all things in order to secure the, the the end for us, or else you know, as one, or else we would lose our salvation. You know, he's got to secure us. He's got to have power over us and over all of our enemies in order to bring us to the that which is promised. This bliss of eschatological joy, um, great joy. New American Standard. Um, book into the book of Jude there so anyway all this to say this if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ you believe in the light the torchbearer of revelation from God who assumed our flesh who assumed our duties who assumed our liabilities who's gonna bring us to God ultimately no matter what resistance either we put up or anybody else in the universe puts up against him believe in the light if you haven't believed in the light if you haven't given yourself up to to christ then you need to do so because if you don't he's gonna do an acting parable in your life and remove gospel influence from you ouch that wouldn't be a good thing to to have gospel influence removed from your life because of your stubborn recalcitrant soul Instead, while you have gospel influence in your life, believe in the light. Uh, come unto me, all you, not, not to the preacher, to the Savior, Jesus said that. Come unto me, all you are burdened, heavy laden with guilt and sin and stains and doubts. You ever heard that one? I have doubt, therefore I'm not coming to Christ. Bring your doubt with you and confess it as doubt. Lord Jesus, I believe. Help my unbelief. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We pray that you would bless it to our souls and help us to respond to it rightly, to understand it does the Old Testament on its own, taught both the sufferings and the glory of the Christ, the Son of Man, and that this Christ, this Son of Man, is the light of the world, the only hope for the forgiveness of sins, the only hope for a ticket to glorification and glory and bliss in that wonderful land, uh, according to the hymn we call Emmanuel's Land. Maybe rightly respond to your word and not try to go toe-to-toe with this, the Son of God, but to believe that he is the light while we have this gospel uh, witness in our lives. May everyone hearing my voice believe in this, the light of the world, our Lord Jesus Christ, and help all all of us who have believed in light to be better light bearers, better sons of light, better uh, children of God, better um, livers and testifiers to others of this glorious gospel. Bless, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.